Hello and welcome to another edition of the Sitcom Club. Joining myself, Mooncat, is Europologio. Hello. Now before we get to today's topic, which is watching, we should mention, of course, the passing on Christmas Eve of Jeremy Lloyd, co-creator of, amongst other things, Are You Being Served? and Low Low with David Croft. Of course, before either of those two shows, he did have a career as an on-screen performer as well. He'd been seen in Rowan and Martin's Laughing, for example, which was shown in the UK on BBC Two. And he'd also been appearing in a BBC sitcom alongside his then-wife, Joanna Lumley, called It's Awfully Bad to Your Eyes, Darling. And it was around about that time that she'd suggested he write about his experience working in Gents Outfitters, which then became How You Being Served. I did not know that. I knew about his career as an actor, because of course he's in Hard Day's Night and Help, a couple of episodes of The Avengers, and of course I know the fact the episode no longer exists, but he's in an episode of Callan, because one of the producers had him earmarked to be Toby Mears, to replace Peter Bowles after the pilot. One of the other producers didn't want him for that part, so while they kept looking for their perfect Toby Mears, and they eventually chose Anthony Valentine, Jeremy Lloyd, very graciously I think, stepped in to play a character called Maitland, who was Toby Mears in all but name. I don't know how they broke that to him. By the way, you haven't got the job, but can you do it just once? <laughs> and, of course, he's also well-known, or his work is well-known, to an entirely different audience because he wrote, I believe, the music and lyrics for Captain Beaky. And one of those songs was performed by Keith Michelle and made it into the charts in 1980. Of course, we had another... Sad loss with David Ryle. And I will confess, I heard the news. I think I saw it on Twitter. Somebody said David Ryle. I thought, oh, who's that? And then I saw a picture. It's like, oh, David Ryle, he's famous because he is a face. Just Google him if you haven't heard of him. As soon as you look upon his face, you'll know him. Now, the most recent thing I watched with him in was Bless Me Father. And so that had kind of blotted out a lot of his other much more famous sitcom roles. He's a great foil for Arthur Lowe in that. He's the bookie, next-door neighbour and atheist. I was not aware of that. I'll need to... Because I've never actually seen Bless Me Father, shockingly enough, so I really need to catch it's up on It's a very cosy, comfortable show, and I'm not sure we could ever talk about it at length. But it is the sitcom equivalent of a nice mug of hot chocolate. Well, as far as sitcoms are concerned, David Ryle, probably best known these days for his role as Grandad in Outnumbered, which just came to an end earlier this year. He was also recently seen in Trolleyed as well. About 20-odd years ago, of course, he was in the very first series of Goodnight Sweetheart, where he was Phoebe's dad. He was a landlord of the pub, and his character was then written out at the end of series one. But I think as far as most people nowadays are concerned, I guess he's most recognisable from being in the Harry Potter films. Which, of course, that was the, the photograph that was used to illustrate him in the news report this week. Well, who isn't in the Harry Potter films? I was looking at Jeremy Lloyd's filmography and I noticed he was in The Sandwich Man. But of course he was in The Sandwich Man. Everybody's in The Sandwich Man. We'll probably deal with The Sandwich Man when we do another Jeff Gakes for Proust. Because have you seen that film? You have to see that film. Everybody's in that film. Outrageously, I haven't seen it, but I have stumbled across it. One Sunday morning on Gold, there it was, and I'm looking at this thing, and, okay, you know that I'm really interested in all aspects of comedy, situation comedy, and so on, and in all the offshoots of that, so if it's something I haven't seen, the chances are that I've probably at least 
heard of it, but I stumbled across that on Gold one Sunday morning and I thought, I have absolutely no idea what this is. I don't know anything about it at all. I mean, I didn't even know who the director was or the writer or anything. So, yeah, I had to look it up because I never, never stumbled across it before. And now, of course, I, for whatever reason, I've kept on stumbling across references to it for the past couple of years. But until that point, it might as well have been an unfinished work that was finally completed in 2012. So before we get to watching, there is another recent sitcom event for us to briefly discuss. Well, this time last year, we discussed Still Open All Hours. That did very well as far as rating last year and as far as I understand it, it's feedback, which then led them to commission the new series. And the new series began on Boxing Day, just passed. And again, it did very well in the ratings. This, however, is the first episode of a complete series. What does it say about us that we're treating that as the hot new sitcom news? How many new sitcoms have begun in the last few years that we haven't touched my reaction to this is an interesting one i'm not sure what my reaction to this is on the one hand it should be invested in it i like original open all hours therefore if it's good i should be delighted and if it's bad i should be angry i'm not particularly enjoying what i've seen but i'm not riled up saying well why have they done this something should be left alone because i can't pinpoint everything that's not working I mean, some of it seems written fairly automatically, robotically. There's some fairly generic Roy Clark stuff in there. And just get the feeling that sometimes some of the writing... I mean, Roy Clark is skilled enough. He's been in the business long enough that I think he can just put something out that is reasonably well-structured for half an hour, goes A, B, C, D, and will not be anything less than competent. So I think that's part of it. If it was really bad, if the jokes didn't really make sense anymore... Or if they were so corny as to be unbelievable, if every single punchline was telegraphed way in advance, that would be one thing. Some of it works and some of it doesn't. Imagine a bunch of lights going on and off, right? So this light represents David Jason's engagement and interest, and this light represents Roy Clark's engagement and interest, and this is the director, and this is other cast members. It's like they never go off and on at the same time. Roy suddenly sort of perked up and thought, ah, yes, I think, yeah, no, I've, I've got an idea here. I think I know what would happen here. Uh, okay. And then he's tailed off. Oh, and now David's suddenly getting a bit, you know, he's getting back into the groove and uh, now he's he's kind of lost. And it, it all seems to be out of sync. I find it an odd show. That's the only way that I can describe it. It's a show which... I haven't really had a reaction to a show like this for quite some time. I mean, I'm sort of ambivalent as far as the overall popularity of it, because I know somebody who absolutely adores it, the new version, and is very, very pleased that there's a new series of it and will watch every episode of it. Just finds it, like you said about Bless Me, Father, just nice, cosy, comfortable viewing. Well, the reason I've... I had to definitely watch episode one as as soon as it came out was because uh, it's only in the last year that my wife discovered the original Open All Hours. And so she was determined that she wanted to see a new series. She's very frustrated with the fact that British series do not have 300 episodes. (laughs) Well, I also spoke to somebody earlier on today who simply said they shouldn't have done it. Shouldn't have brought it back. It's a piece of nonsense. It's in the same sort of league as the legacy of Reginald Perrin and Live Awards and so on. Now, like I said, I'm sort of ambivalent about 
A, the overall popularity of it, and B, whether or not they should have brought it back. The fact is they did, so there it is. I don't mind anything being brought back. As long as the reasons for bringing it back are not too cynical, and as long as people are willing to say, no, it doesn't work, if it doesn't work, and willing to say, no, it's fine, if it's fine. Unfortunately, when you do bring things back, there's too many people whose opinions have already been formed before pen has even hit paper. Well, here's my issue with it. I just find it, and I don't use this word flippantly, I find it weird. I find it a weird setup altogether. Everybody is going through the motions. And again, that sounds flippant, I don't mean it to be, but everybody's just sort of assumed their old characters, with one exception I'll come to in a second, and otherwise it's strangely lifeless. The Granville Mavis thing is very annoying to me because it's just a rerun of the Arkwright Nurse Gladys Emanuel thing, and that had a reason for existing. Because of the generation they were, it seemed believable that for some reason Nurse Gladys would be waiting for her mother to die or or move to a nursing home or whatever, that she would be waiting for some change in circumstance before she would marry Arkwright. But Mavis, Mavis was born in the 1940s, we can we assume. Well, Granville was born in 1949, it's stated in the original. What is it? It's her sister? It's Mavis's sister that's the problem? No, you're grown-ups, you're adults. So the climbing up the ladder thing was just... Yes, it was fine when Arkwright does it, but Granville is not Arkwright. And the situation has changed. Those shops do still exist, though the brown coat bothers me. But that kind of thing, the climbing up the ladder, the the weird sexual frustration, no, that doesn't make sense. I did actually think at the beginning of the episode, when he's climbing up the ladder to see Mavis, I thought, oh God, they haven't just gone completely back to the future. Maybe they've junked the Mavis storyline from last year and now Granville's chasing after Nurse Gladys Emmanuel because he's he across the road. Mind. Uh, yeah, yes. well, he's across the road. She lives across the road. So I thought, oh, they're not going to do that, are they? Because he's assumed every other characteristic of Arkwright, so why not just go to Whole Hog? But as far as the overall performance is concerned, I think I said to yourself when it was going out, I said, it's like a spoof of a sitcom. So everybody comes in and does their I have that pardon sort of line and then the the reaction of the audience however they're doing the sound mixing for this the audience reaction is just seemingly way way out of proportion with what's happening. Moderately funny lines are getting a huge reaction which makes me think again about okay how's this being done Is it are they doing laughter washing or whatever it may be we've talked about that before. To me, it gives it a, an odd sort of feeling as far as watching it's concerned. It all feels... Again, it's the aching self-consciousness of television as well. This is traditional, even though there was a weird bit where the camera moved between the shop and the back room that fe- felt unnecessary. I'm fine, just lock off a camera. I don't need a bit of razzle-dazzle movement. <laughs> yes. Well, speaking of television, let's give it kudos for interlaced video. It looks great. It looks the part. It looks like a studio sitcom because it is. Whereas, as I understand it, I haven't seen it, but as I understand it, Birds of a Fellow on ITV, beginning its second series, has actually switched to the phony film look for 
their second series, having originally used Interlace Video last year. Anyway, so I think there's just something, I can't quite put my finger on it, about the overall feeling of it, where it all just seems a bit sort of hyper. For some reason, it's sort of indefinable. But anyway, my main issue with it is what happened between 1985 and 2013 that caused Granville to so enthusiastically embrace Arkwright's ways when he'd never given the slightest hint of doing that before then. Because he's basically Arkwright Mark II. And there isn't any explanation being given as to why he now feels so comfortable to assume that role. Just a little bit of dialogue between, say, Nurse Gladys and perhaps Black Widow. Just something there where they recount a little tale or whatever maybe Just a little piece of dialogue, 30 seconds or whatever, would then perhaps put it into context. Because it's not as if we haven't seen Open All Hours for the past 30 years. It's, it's on gold practically every single day. It's been repeated on BBC many times. So it's not as if... This hasn't been seen at all by anybody who's now watching this version. That just bugs me. I'd, I'd, I'd like to hear some sort of explanation as to why it is that Granville is now like this. Speaking of interlaced, I don't think any of the cinemas near me are showing The Hobbit in high frame rate. Damn. Oh, what? Or as I like to think of it, the London Weekend version. <laughs> the Brian Izzard version. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, if only, if only, if they could somehow Take a letter, put, Mr. Baggins. If they could put The Hobbit, or indeed any other film, through a Brian Izzard filter, then I'd watch. Guaranteed. Don't care what it is, I'm there. That's one sale you've got. Now somebody go off and invent the Brian Izzard filter. So watching the sitcom that we watched this week, we went a little bit, just a little bit old school. Yes, we did, because what happened was that Lapscat, regular listener of the show, hello Lapsed, he had requested that we talk about watching a while back. There are 56 episodes of watching, and we couldn't really see a window of opportunity in which to watch all of the episodes. So we asked Lapsed if he could nominate a specific episode. And in doing so, this is effectively an old school sitcom club podcast, because when we began the podcast all the way, way back, and it's get on for two years now we would talk about one specific episode of a sitcom for the whole show and then as the podcast evolved we then started talking about complete series or complete genres or whatever it may be so this is a bit of a throwback if you're listening to this on a Thursday, you can tweet about it i think it's tbt isn't it isn't that what you've that used confused me yes people putting up pictures and it's like that's not tim brooke taylor so watching we did initially start watching watching from the beginning this is quite some time ago i think we watched episodes one and two of the first series you didn't take to it did you i only watched episode one. Oh right okay so you but definitely... you went you went further you you watched episode two as well well i have watched most of the episodes at the time or significant chunks so i i remember things about it and i remember spoilers about it so the situation starts with sisters pamela and brenda wilson and their habits of people watching. They sometimes meet up in the pub, in the park, look at the people going by, and make up outlandish stories and imagine what their lives might be like. And into this comes a guy in his biker leathers. They start imagining stuff about him, but somehow he gets into the conversation, and it turns out that rather than being a biker, he's actually a nerdy, nebbishy birdwatcher called Malcolm, and he strikes up a friendship with Brenda. And they go birdwatching together and... Brenda doesn't particularly enjoy it. And that's the basic thing that drives 
the show. The mismatched personalities of Brenda and Malcolm, their friendship, I guess the will they want their attention. And on the sides of that, you have Pamela and the episodes we watched from series three concern her relationship with her boyfriend, David Lynch. And then we've also have Malcolm and his slightly overbearing mother. Malcolm's played by Paul Bowne or Bone. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Brenda played by Emma Ray, Pamela, Lisa Tarbuck. Patsy Byrne is Malcolm's mother, Mrs. Marjorie Stoneaway. Malcolm's from the other side of the Mersey. He's from the Wirral, from the nice middle-class parts of the Wirral. And John Bowler plays Pamela's boyfriend, David Lynch. And I won't insult your intelligence by making a crack. Mooncat did not enjoy himself watching this. That's the first thing to get out of the way. No, it wasn't all that bad. It wasn't all that bad. I mean, okay, for whatever reason, I didn't take to this too well in the first instance. And I was sort of thinking when the two of them were getting together in the first episode, I'm thinking, why are they so down on each other? I mean, why are they so... It's a stereotype of Liverpudlian women, isn't it? Well, Liverpudlians in general, this gobby, sarcastic nature. This is the kind of thing you've defended in Glaswegian shows. Yes, this is true. I wouldn't have said that Sandra was like that in the Liverbird. That's why I said stereotype. I don't know, for whatever reason, they weren't engaged me in that first episode. And I really wasn't all that curious as to whether anything did develop between them. But as I started watching this episode here, I was intrigued enough by the storyline to then say, let's watch the episode that comes after that. Episode we watched was Series 3, Episode 2, Deceiving, followed by Episode 3, Requiting. And so it can't have been all that bad. If I wanted to see a further episode of it, because I want to see what happened next, then I must have enjoyed it on some level. But for whatever reason, I don't know, I just I didn't massively take to it. I don't have anything against Liverpudlians myself, but that that is just screaming out for a butt at the end of it, that sentence, isn't it? But for whatever reason, I didn't particularly take to the characters. I mean, you can't really get annoyed at Malcolm because he's just nibbling anything to hurt anybody. He's absolutely harmless, so how could you get annoyed at him? And yet, for some reason, Brenda's finding a way to be annoyed at him. If she's misunderstood that he's a bird watcher rather than a biker, then that's her error. It's not his fault. But yet she seems to be taken out on him. And he in turn seems excessively tolerant of her. But there has to be a spark. There has to be something there. We talk about modern television and its love of story arcs. Its love of things continuing and callbacks and the fact that you end up getting what's called continuity lockout. And I remember watching as being... An early example of this. I think there comes a point. I mean, this is 58 episodes long. I think there comes a point where you can't just jump in on it. The show we watched, David had already been introduced. And you already had to have some faint idea of the relationship between Pamela and David. I mean, there are hints in the little ditty to open up the show that from Brenda's point of view, all is not ideal in this relationship, but there's something there. So the opening establishes that much. But yes, I know what you mean about you're not entirely sure who's who and where everybody is. I think I asked you at one point, I said, are they in London now? Because I have the accent of the guy who looks like Peter Powell, who's now in EastEnders, who works... Terry, played by Perry Fenwick or Fenwick. There you go. So I was thinking, oh, has Malcolm moved down south? Is is that what it is now? Is it that he's down south and Brenda is still up north and now it's a sort of distance thing? But of course it wasn't. So I got well, from that I just said that there's lots of movement and story arcs. There hasn't been that much movement between series one and series three. This is sort of my faint impression. And there is one specific case 
but I don't want to talk about it for fear of spoiling the entire thing. Not only for our listeners, but for yourself, because I did offer to blow the gaff on a particular point, And you said, no, I might just return to this. But I would say that over the six, seven, fifteen series and a hundred million episodes, there is more movement than you got in other shows of a similar length at that time. Seems to be more like a 90s and 2000s thing to have that much change. Okay, I want to throw in a point at this stage in the proceedings. This is a general point round specific to watching, but it's based on something you've just said. This series ran from 1987 to 1993. Granada program, networked on ITV. At that period of time, and I'm thinking more along the lines of the 87, the opening of it, rather than the end, is it actually possible to arrive at a show completely cold? What I mean by that is the audience for the show in the UK, you've got at this point in 87, you've got four networks to choose from. You still have to buy a specific magazine to get either BBC or ITV listings. And if you don't buy either magazine, you're going to see the listings in your newspaper or on teletext or whatever it may be. It's not as if you're being presented with the whole myriad of choices that you could get now, where you wouldn't really want to just take potluck on Netflix and go into episode three of season four of a particular show. I mean, I'm asking this question as if I'm completely clueless about it, whereas I know from myself in 1987, I, even if I did land on a particular program and I didn't know who the hell anybody was, it would only take me to pick up the Radio Times and that should establish who's who pretty much straight away. But then I was always something of a televisual enthusiast. So I don't know that my reaction is particularly normal. I'm just not sure what I'm talking about now because as I said, maybe there is just as much story movement in, in anything else. I mean, thinking like the liver birds. I don't know why, for some reason, I can't shift the idea in my mind. I've, basically, I'm, I'm saying I have this point and I have no evidence for it. The impression in my mind is that watching is a show which you have to watch all of them to get not just the best out of it, but the basics out of it. You start watching from series five, it's going to be harder work than, say, for instance... The liver birds, not just things that stay static. The, the classic 70s, you know, Terry and June are eternal. So that's my point. I got this faint impression, but if you want me to bring evidence up, I'm going to have to watch all 58 episodes. 58? I thought it was only 56. No, they made two more while I was waffling there. <laughs> now, there's another point I want to bring up. And as much as I, I'm not entirely sure it's a good thing to keep going to TV tropes, and people have criticised the very existence of TV tropes, that it's beginning to damage criticism. Not that I think what we do could be called anything quite so highfalutin as criticism, but eventually you just start classifying things. And there's always the worry that somebody will start writing from TV tropes. They'll just go clicking through random pages and start putting it all together, and you'll have something that's very, very cold and self-conscious. But they do come up with some pithy phrases. Actually, this isn't a thing that originated with TV tropes. It originated with an article about a film, the title of which I've forgotten. I just know it had Kirsten Dunst in it. And it's something we mentioned before. I think we first mentioned it in Mulberry. The Manic Pixie Dream Girl. From that basic description we've given you, you could imagine that Brenda was a Manic Pixie Dream Girl because Malcolm is a little bit lonely, a little bit oppressed, a little just needs to have his life shaken up a little bit. You would not be surprised I me mean, that if you saw a picture of Brenda, the way she dresses in this sort of post-punk, Cindy Lauper-ish way, you might think that she was a bit cheerful, that her sarcasm was just worldliness, but essentially good-natured. She isn't, is she? I'm not saying she's not essentially good-natured, but 
there's a side to her, and as you found in the first series, it can make her hard to sympathise with. First of all, as far as her dress is concerned, yes, I think that she would be more suitable to be all sort of in black. I don't mean that in sort of goth type way. I just mean... Rusty goth. Ah, no, well, no, no, no. Or yes. But no, you wouldn't have thought. I agree. There's something... If you saw publicity stills and just had a very brief description, oh, it's about this nebbishy guy who meets a gobby girl and they strike up a friendship and their personalities aren't quite matched, you would start imagining a very different show if you had that knowledge of certain popular culture tropes, which had certainly been in the air then. I mean, the Manic Pixie Dream Girl varies. Some of them just act like La La from the Teletubbies. Some are a little bit more cynical, but none are just relentlessly... Acerbic, that's the word I'm looking for, acerbic as Brenda. You tell me if this is in TV Tropes, because I'm not a regular visitor to the site. But before we started recording today, I just watched the Christmas episode of Peep Show. And Mark uses a nice phrase to describe his girlfriend, Dobby. He describes her as a sayer. She says things. She says things that other people think. And when you're in polite conversation, mixed company and what have you, and there's perhaps an elephant in the room, then most people are not going to directly reference the elephant in the room. Whereas in the case of Brenda, I would say that she definitely is. Brenda is a sayer. And therefore, she's going to, not deliberately, not even wittingly, but she's going to cause chaos wherever she goes. Like, for example, when they went to the do. Well, that's pretty much the, the, the plot of requiting the second one we watched. So we might want to put that to one side until we get to that. Let's go through. But I will say, I'm not entirely sure about the not deliberately. It's not done guilelessly. It's just done that she doesn't really care how much damage she's causing. We're making it sound so horrible. And yet this was a very popular show. So, series three, episode two, Deceiving... As mentioned earlier, Pamela, she's going out with David, who is a little bit older. He's smart. He's probably an executive. I wasn't paying quite enough attention to work out exactly what his job is, but he's definitely upper middle class. And Pamela is very happy in this relationship. Brenda goes to Malcolm's workplace, causes a bit of trouble. And somehow Brenda, Malcolm and Malcolm's quick thinking, quick talking cockney friend Terry all end up going to a place on the docks to have lunch. Actually, no, Malcolm and Brenda go and Terry turns up later, doesn't he? And who should they see there but David? And he's with a woman, and the woman is not Pamela. And they have a really big smooch at the end of the conversation. What, the three of them? <laughs> David and his mystery woman have a massive smooch. So it's a fairly stock plot, isn't it? You see somebody with somebody they're not supposed to be with. I don't know about you, but I think I knew what the ending was anyway. So immediately... Okay, now, did you have prior knowledge? No. I don't mean had you seen the end of the episode previously, but what I mean is, did you know that that particular character was still going to appear in several episodes? Oh, yes, come? yes, I did. I did know that. So the but chances... I, I thought for the sake of, there were only a few different ways it could go, and the most straightforward one, I'm never seeing you again, did not seem to be the most likely, in a sitcom anyway. So there's no possibility that Pamela was going to castrate David with the carving knife and say, never darken my door again, you philandering fuck. Well, I knew that that definitely wasn't going to happen because I knew David would turn up in later shows. So really, I have no room to talk. 
Yes, I did have prior knowledge. Sorry. But I didn't know. I hadn't seen that particular episode, so it wasn't that specific. And even if you knew that he was coming back, you didn't know that Lisa Tarbuck wasn't going to say Flandering Fuck. I mean, that could still have happened anyway. But... So the name of your racehorse. (laughs) (laughs) So again, I'm going off a very vague memory of the show's reputation that was a little bit soap opera-ish. Things carried over from episode to episode. And also that it was just slightly more youthful than the standard middle-class sofa sitcom. And I don't doubt that some critics of the time might have been incredibly boring on the topic about, oh, a good show's being made this year. Now we can throw away everything that's been made every year before now. But it's a stock plot. Malcolm's a stock character. I think Brenda's the big difference. Brenda's the only Brenda I can think of. Even Terry is something of a Malcolm from Terry and June. He is the co-worker who is just that little bit more competent. He has maybe little dodges and deals going on. I agree that it is a stock plot, but I don't think that the... I'm not doing this as a criticism. I'm not not saying, ah, you think it's original, but look. I'm just saying, look at the skeleton of this. These are good old-fashioned sitcom bones in here. So we have certain traits. We've got the misunderstanding. We've also got the situation where clear explanation of what has transpired would actually see this situation resolved a lot quicker. So a lot of yeah, it initially sensible is... sensible action ahead of time, really. But then again, there'd be no plot. <laughs> well, th- th- this is, again, th- th- this is a situation that crops up again and again. When David's there and Brenda is being very cold to him and eventually David realises he needs to exit stage left, you'd think the more sensible approach would be if Malcolm was to take David aside and say to him, uh, excuse us ladies, uh, manly stuff and then, he wouldn't say it like that obviously, but he takes him aside takes him to the kitchen and just has it out with him and says, now look here, you who was that woman that we saw you with in the restaurant what's going on there then, Hey, you dirty dog then he can get the SP from David and then he can tell Brenda later on what happened and they don't even need to involve Pamela then and everything's fine but as you say, there wouldn't be a plot if that was to take place. So things have to be left unsaid and there has to be innuendo in the air and then eventually an awkward confession to Pamela from Brenda and Malcolm and so on and so on. Of course, then the whole thing takes a couple of days to resolve, whereas with the right course of action, it would have taken no more than a few minutes. Do you remember that show, Washes Whiter? No. Documentary series about advertising. I felt educated by the end of it. They do briefly mention something, and it's something that kind of ground my gears a bit in this episode. The argument between the sassy, empowered woman and the weaselly, snivelling man. I'm not going to do this whole thing of, oh, men are treated nastily in adverts, men are so oppressed. It's a discussion that needs more nuance than I can manage before the end of this. But I used to hate adverts where there was just an argument going on and we were just on the woman's side because usually it was an advert for a product that was mainly sold to women. It just always irritated me. It's not so much a case of it's unfair to men. It's just like, I don't want to see people arguing. I don't want to see people arguing with no particular interest for myself. I don't care what this argument's about. These are people I've never seen before. They're not standing up for any great principle. It's always just There's usually a castration metaphor or something like... There was definitely one where some woman comes in and like tips a bowl of spaghetti on a guy's head and then cuts two balls off his executive toy. You know, the the one on the desk. Yeah. And it was just so overdone that 
yes, and a certain segment of the audience are cheering and a certain segment of the audience are cringing because of the castration implication. And some are just, it's just, it was a cliche from day one. I don't know, I just couldn't get invested in it. I wasn't really on anybody's side. I wasn't thinking that poor man. I was just thinking, I could just see the advertising executives slapping each other on the back in my mind's eye. Anyway, Pamela does that. She tips her bowl of soup onto David's head. Well, she dips his napkin in it. Really, for that to work for me, David would have had to have retaliated, not because men deserve an equal say in a situation like this, but more because David should retaliate, then Pamela should retaliate, then David should retaliate, then somebody else in the restaurant should get caught up in it, played by James Finlayson. (laughs) (laughs) And it should turn into a Leo McCary reciprocal (laughs) retribution. Slapstick plot, or maybe even a Hal Needham movie. The end of Cannonball Run, one, two, three, four to seven. <laughs> Everybody just smacking it up, blazing saddles with the pie fight. And the... Well, yeah, I completely agree. But, okay, here's a couple of observations about that scene. One, I remember saying to yourself at the time, and I don't want to come across as flippant and just dismissive about the whole episode. It was just something that I picked up on. Brenda tips the bowl of soup over David's head, and I said to you, Unless that was gazpacho soup, made famous by Red Dwarf, that would bloody well hurt. A bowl of soup has just been delivered to your table and you get it tipped over your head. And he just sits there as if he's a statue. How can you not jump up? Well, it's that, that thing of, it's a conversation we can't have because the answer's obvious about realism. In any kind of television, really, certain kinds of realism can appear. Some should and some just can't. I mean, a realistic plot would be before David meets up with, oh, did we blow the gaff on this? He was meeting up with his estranged wife. They were settling some assets and I think agreeing to split up for good. So he says. I'm not convinced. Now, a realistic plot would be David thinking, now I know this is going to happen. Either calling Pamela in advance and saying, look, we need to have a conversation. I'm married, but I the marriage is over. Either that or, okay, I'll have the meeting first. Let's just make sure that all the eyes are dotted and the T's are crossed. And then after the meeting that night, David goes over and sits Pamela down and says, look, I had a meeting early this afternoon. I think you need to know about this. That's one kind of realism. Maybe he was going to do that. Well, okay. But Brenda's beaten him to it, so to speak. But as I say, if he had that kind of realism, then there'd be no plot. Another kind of realism you can't have is Brenda, hey, I'm a sassy 80s woman pretending I'm in a commercial for jeans. Pause a bowl of soup on his head and he screams. (laughs) You have nightmares that night after watching it. (laughs) If you're not already sympathetically disposed to Brenda, then this is really not going to win you over, is it? Or Brenda picks up the ball and goes... Until it's sufficiently cooled by her breath. <laughs> by the time she'd finished it, she was oh, David's gone. See, now we're into law and hardy territory. You know what's coming, and you just wait for it. <laughs> you know what Finlayson's about to do. But, you know, it's his turn. It's his turn for retaliation. Okay, so, other thing I was going to say about the soup pouring incident. And this is actually, I'm not saying... Right, stepping firmly into the conventions of the show itself. I think that Brenda tipping the soup over David's head, that him sitting there and taking that, I think is an admission of guilt on his part. Because as you say, he could have 
tipped off Pamela that he was going to have this meeting in the first place. As it is, it does seem rather overblown. Well, no, again, we've got another kind of realism you can't have, which is David loses his temper quite badly there and then and screams out the answer, but he is furious. Again, the atmosphere is soured. But he could have looked hurt. I don't mean hurt as an injured. I mean, he could have looked like really upset that she's done this, but he doesn't. He just sits there and looks sort of sorry for himself. He sits there to wait for episode three to come around, because otherwise it's like, oh, we could have milked another 25 minutes out of that. That's not what I was saying. I agree that, yes, if it's a complete misunderstanding, he can just blot it out. But what I'm getting at here is that I think that he still knows that he's done wrong. He should have told Pamela about the meeting in advance, or he should have just arranged the paperwork between himself and his ex-wife and their solicitors. But doing it in the way that he's done it... I'm confused. I'm confused. Right? Are you saying it's meant to be like that, that we're supposed to... What am I talking about? As I said, this sitcom is soap opera. This might be something that crops up. This might be series three, episode four, mightn't it? Yeah, exactly. Because for a moment, I I was getting very close to coming out with some variation on it's not real. No, I said it there, so I prefaced it by saying I'm operating within the universe that watching is in. So I'm not saying, oh, in real yeah, life... Yeah, but you can really this. mess up doing that. Right, I'm talking about the character, David, right? So let's accept all the conventions that watching throws up, okay? I think the reason that he reacts to Brenda tipping the soup over his head and the way that he does, sitting there looking sorry for himself, is because he does know that he's still done wrong in some small way because even if we accept his argument that the whole meeting was innocent and so on he still sat there with his ex-wife in a seat in the restaurant by the window where anybody can see him see the two of them there toasting each other with champagne and what have you doesn't look like a meeting where they're just sorting out they do kiss in such a way that david actually ends up in his ex-wife's mouth up to his elbows like a snake eating a rabbit i'm exaggerating very slightly but only slightly that does not sound to me like a meeting where they just had a few documents to sign i'm still inclined to go for the out of universe explanation which is another episode in this right i'm not accusing you of this but it is a problem i have sometimes discussing things with people sometimes you're talking about the stories that didn't work this bit didn't work. And the person you're talking to can only go for the in-universe explanation. There's a blogger called Chris Sims. You might be interested in him. He writes a lot about wrestling. I think I might have mentioned this before. Well, I'll mention it again because it's a good example. And he was talking about the film Superman Returns. Spoiler for Superman Returns. Is that one of the modern ones like Star Trek Enterprise? It's about 10 years old now, yes. I think it was circa 2002 it came out. And... I found it such a drag to watch that I think I might actually, on some level, still be in Cineworld in Bradford watching it. <laughs> well, I'm sure it has its defenders. So there is a scene... Well, let's not have too big a spoiler. There is a scene where a henchman is killed by a child pushing a piano in a certain direction. It slams into the guy and kills him. And Chris Sims apparently said to somebody that this is not the kind of thing he wanted to see in a Superman film. And the thing... The person came back, yes, but it's understandable that the child would try and protect his mother. He said, no, I'm not criticising the child. I'm criticising the person who wrote down Child Kills Henchman and thought that was a good idea in a Superman film. But I'm not accusing you of that. I'm just saying, you know, I was in that bad mood during when we were doing working class. I haven't quite lost it yet. <laughs> I'm just snapping at everything at the moment. And No, that is my argument. I think that... He doesn't have to go, 
the soup, the soup, it burns. He doesn't have to do that. And he doesn't have to get violent or angry or start using expletives. But I think that if he was wholly, utterly innocent and Brenda had just made some terrible, catastrophic mistake, then I think that he would at the very least look hurt and offended and upset. But he doesn't. He just sits there and sort of accepts his punishment. And so that's why I'm saying, and maybe it will be something, maybe Lab's Cat has been listening to us saying this for the last 10 minutes and says, yes, if you were to watch it and then get to like Series 3, Episode 7, you'd find out what all that was about. Because maybe it does actually play into something. Maybe there's a reason behind it. We surely should not have a character respond in a particular way purely because there's an advert break coming up, even if it makes it for a good freeze frame visual. Can you think of any examples of that? Can you think of any examples of really forced cliffhangers in sitcoms? No. There's your homework. (laughs) (laughs) So our story continues in the episode Deceiving. Malcolm is working in Mod Shop, I think, the clothes shop he works at. Okay, where do we think it's supposed to be? Where is it supposed to be, Top really? Shop. Is it, uh, was, right. Wasn't there a show called Top Shop? Yes, or, Top yeah. Men or? or was it was it Man at CNA? It's a clothing shop. Malcolm works there. David comes in, ostensibly to buy a leather jacket, but also to have a quick word with Malcolm to say, look, big bust up with Pamela. This is the real situation. But also seeded in this scene is the fact that the office party's coming up. David shows what a smooth operator he is by dropping the name of the manager to intimidate Terry the overconfident Cockney co-worker, but then reveals, ha-ha, he just spotted it on a poster. I want to throw in an observation at this point. Brenda, is she just one of these people who causes havoc and chaos wherever she goes? It's in the lyrics, man. I bring chaos where there was calm. Well, yeah, but she may be understating. So the question should be, why have you been watching this for the last 25 minutes? It may be that she's sort of understating things somewhat. Well, this was the one that made Brenda very hard to sympathise with. Right, you know how there was... I'm talking about the real world here, okay? You know how there are certain people that you get a feeling from just sort of observing them or speaking to them for about 30 seconds or so, you just sort of know... I am so glad that I don't know you and that you're not involved in my day-to-day ongoings because I know that if you were, then you would just fuck everything up. It's like you observe somebody on public transport and you think, thank God I don't know that person. Because it usually is somebody who's speaking out of turn or saying things out loud that other people think and saying it a little bit too loudly. And if they get asked, to engage in a complicated activity like for example showing the conductor the train ticket that is not going to go smoothly if for whatever reason you were behind that person in a queue in the post office you would not want to be behind them and if you manage to get in front of them in the queue you think oh thank god i got in front of them oh can you imagine it being stuck behind them because you know that whatever they're going to do they're going to make a complete and utter balls up of it now am i being too harsh on Brenda when I suggest that she might be one of those people? Brenda is quite something in this particular one. The David and Pamela thing is, as far as we can tell, kind of resolved. Long story short, Malcolm ends up inviting Brenda to the works party. You know, we haven't talked much about Malcolm. He's a bit like the maypole around which these characters dance. Well, he concludes the first episode that we saw folded up into a settee with, is it an apple in his mouth? And I was rather hoping that that was actually going to be the conclusion to all 
episode, but unfortunately not, because it was threatening to go that way, wasn't it? Because at the end of the next episode, he was then again obsessing about, hey, look at this sofa bed action, this is really good, this, look at the mechanism, and I'm thinking, oh, this is the shtick, this is how it always ends, and I thought, that would be, fa- <laughs> be fabulous if that was just the way it was done, and then that actually would have intrigued me to watch more episodes, because I would think, okay, if they go away to the Cotswolds for a weekend, how are they going to work that in? How are they going to work in him being stuck in the same sofa bed with an apple in his mouth? And I'd be quite intrigued to see that. That would make a nice little YouTube compilation. 56 endings to all the episodes all laid out. Clearly that's not the case because that's not how the next episode ends. So they go to the works too. There's tension between Brenda and female co-worker Susan, played by Liz Crowther. You think Susan has designs on Malcolm? Possibly. Okay, now you said we haven't talked about Malcolm very much. Let's talk about Malcolm for a second. I could see that there are certain attractive traits in Malcolm. Okay, he's a long, lanky streak of piss and what have you but there is i mean this in the nicest way because it's a great advantage for a comic actor there's a slight resemblance to stan laurel only taller you know what the laurel and hardy thing is never going away so just a little something that annoys me because there is quite a well-known caricature you sometimes see of laurel and hardy right well this this, right this is a thing oliver hardy was taller than stan laurel and i've heard people discussing only Fools and Horses and Dad's Army in these terms. Ah, yes, the pompous little men and the big, tall, silly one. It's like, Oliver Hardy was six foot two. Stan Laurel, five foot ten. I won a box of Cadbury's Cream Eggs for knowing that. Chocolate never lies. <laughs> Not on things like that. Right. So next time you see somebody portraying Stan Laurel as being taller than Oliver Hardy, throw a cream egg at them. No, don't, because they don't deserve a cream egg. Eat a cream egg, scrunch up the foil, put it in a pea shooter, and pwee! And then tip a bowl of non-gazpacho soup over the head as a full stop. Chocolate so, never lies. Auburn. I have another word for Paul Bourne. It's a, it's a nice one. Beckinsale-esque. Yes, I'll give you the that. The voice is a little similar, actually. Mm-hmm. You like to play your recasting game, and we have played our games of... Well, I say you. We both like to play the recasting game, pushing sitcoms back and forward 10, 15 years. So basically, it meant the cast of The Lovers, but reworked so that it somehow becomes watching. Do you not think then that Malcolm and Beryl would be perfectly suited? Yes. Yeah, and Malcolm's mother would be thrilled. Yes. I've seen Patsy Byrne live, you know, in a production of Arsic and All This, and sitting in the theatre seat in front of me was... Bonnie Langford. Ah. Right, quick quiz quest for you. Who plays Richard Beckinsale's friend in Lovers? Robin Asquith. Oh, you were so close. Damn it. You were so close. You were 50% oh, right. Oh, sorry. No, sorry. 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 You were talking about the Lovers. I thought we were talking about imaginary 70s watching. No. Sorry. It was a real question. I still don't know the answer. It was actually Robin Nedwell. There you go. But no. Okay. So Malcolm and Beryl, perfectly suited to one another. There you go. Is that going to be our next general heading discussion sometime? Shipping, pairing off the sitcom characters I like from this. other sitcoms. Yeah, I like this. Right, well, that's for another day. So they go to the office party. It's not a Christmas do, is it? I did watch this. I really did watch this. We've moved on to the next episode, haven't we? Yes, we have. I just got out of the way the thing of, right, David and Pamela are reconciled for the moment. Malcolm has invited Brenda to the works do. They're going to the works do. And as you said earlier, in your peep show example, Brenda is a sayer here. I find the effect alienating. There needs to be a scene where the 
Waffler on stage, played by an actor of great distinction whose name I have forgotten, but is the dentist brother-in-law in As Time Goes By, so you know who I'm talking about. There needs to be a scene where he does something wrong. Makes a pass at Brenda. Makes a pass at Malcolm. Does something. Okay, it's hand-wavy, it's formulaic, that's fine. Formula works for sitcoms. But no, she undermines this guy. This guy is obviously quite nervous about making his speech. He's not a gifted public speaker. And she just keeps making little sarcastic comments and undercutting him. And we do find out that there's a nepotistic element to the company's awards. But I think she's already started to take shots at him by that point. And I think that she could communicate to Malcolm in a far more subtle way her disapproval of the situation. She could do it in such a way that she could give Malcolm little glances, little smirks and what have you. So that Malcolm would know that Brenda's sort of thinking of him saying, oh, I'm sorry that you've got to sit through this lousy speech, but, you know, I guess you've got to. He's your boss and what have you. And if she was to do it in that way, then the guy on the platform, he really couldn't respond to that. He couldn't get annoyed at her for giving her boyfriend little glances. Or the guy is so long-winded that she's genuinely kind of hypnotized and just says again it's a standby thing that somebody just blurts something out because they've gone into a kind of trance yeah she says something that she thought she was only thinking oh sorry was that out loud something like that so anyway the management are not pleased they think brenda's an employee they try and fire her they can't fire her but malcolm gets the hard word and malcolm ends up quitting all as a result of brenda behaving in a way that wasn't really justifiable yeah I'm sad now. So are we going to come back to watching? Do we have to find out if Malcolm gets his job back? Malcolm goes into shock, and that is why we're back to the folding settee, because just to shake him out of his trance, they ask him to demonstrate the action of a sofa bed. He's getting dangerously close to Frank Spencer territory there, I think. I mean, okay, I appreciate that they want him to demonstrate the sofa bed because he's interested in how the sofa bed works, but and that almost sounds like Les and Vic Reeves' big night out. I mean, it's like, he likes the spirit level. Show him the spirit level and he'll smile. You know, hey, hey, Malcolm, look, 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 sofa bed. Malcolm, look, sofa bed. He's not like that. Do you want to come back to watch? Yes, it? I actually do. Because, again, this might be why it ran for 58 episodes and so many years. You weren't taken with this show. I didn't particularly enjoy the ones I watched, but I know that I've seen enough of it that there was something there and that there are probably more engaging episodes to deal with. But even then, it's, this, it's that soap opera effect. Okay, do you know what? This is possibly a first for the podcast, but I am going to call us out right here, right now. I'm going to suggest that we have ballsed up doesn't invalidate anything that we've said in this podcast, but we started watching watching from the start. We gave up on it. Now, there should be something in that. I mean, if it didn't hold our attention in the first couple of episodes or so, then, you know, perhaps that says something about the program itself rather than our attention span. But nonetheless, we ended up saying to Laps Cat, give us one episode and we'll watch that. And then we've spent the last hour talking about how it's difficult to understand who anybody is from 
watching it from episode <laughs> two of season three. Well, whose fault's that? It's ours. And then we're talking about how, okay, well, why did he react like that? And and what have you? And, well, you know, maybe if we kept on watching it, we sort of found out. Well, exactly. Yes. So maybe we should have watched all 58 episodes. Colin, hey, I said this before. I said that we needed to do it properly. But did we have the time? That was the question. So you want to go back and watch all 58 episodes? I do, but if it's okay with Laps Cat because it was his nomination, I don't want to watch them in a 2014 slash 15, depending on when you're listening to this, Netflix style binge watch, because I don't think that that's how it's meant to be seen. I think that we should watch it. It doesn't have to be once a week, but we should watch it over a period of time and see how it evolves and then come back to it and we'll do watching to the return. Let's do this right now. Here is an official sitcom club promise. We are concluding our run just now with this episode of watching. And if you were listening to ourselves last year, you'll know that we take a little winter break. We come back in the spring. Okay, here's an official sitcom club promise. We will watch all 58 episodes of watching. And we'll watch them over the next, say, three months. And then in the springtime, 2015, we will then review the complete watching. How about that? So I'm holding up my hands and saying, we got this one wrong. Which in a way sort of does invalidate the last hour. But what the hell? We gave it a shot. And rather than us saying, oh, I don't know who any of these people are. That Brenda, oh, she's bloody miserable, isn't she? I'll oh, screw this. Put on open all hours. Instead, we're saying, no, it's not them, it's us. And we're going to stick with it. And we're going to see it out. We're going to see how the characters evolve. I'm going to get find out what this massive spoiler that you won't mention is. And I'm still convinced that it's going to be some sort of upper hand, it peaks too soon type business. But we'll see. And in the springtime, we will cover the whole watching saga. How about that then? Fine with me. Funnily enough, our watching marathon session has arrived at just the right time. Because, as people remember from last year, we take a little winter's break at this point. Now, we're not quite done yet because we'll be back next week. We've got one more show in this run. It's going to be a big surprise. It is. You, you will not believe what we've chosen to review next week. I am quite surprised I've agreed to it, to be perfectly honest. But, yes. Yeah, so i actually denied agreeing to it. Well, I, unless you've got a recording of me denying that I've agreed to it, and hang on a second, you have, then I deny it. Did we agree on that? I remember New Year's surprise. I don't remember anything about I don't think I would have agreed to that. No, I think you need an explanation. Because you did agree to that. <laughs> I did not. So that'll be coming next week. And in the meantime, do keep an ear out. Hopefully you would have caught it back on Christmas Eve. But we did a little pilot of our second string to our bow podcast, Chaffa Cakes for Proust. I say Proust. We do have some things. We do have a list of things we want to discuss. So there'll be more of them. In... There won't be sitcoms, but don't worry. We're not going to stray too far from our normal obsessions. So there'll be more of them to come later on in the year. Now, keep an eye on the Sitcom Club Twitter feed and Facebook in the meantime, and you'll find out all the details about all of those. Obviously, if there are any particular sitcoms that you'd like us to talk about in the future, or if there's any non-sitcom related topics you'd like us to talk about on Jaffa Cakes, either way, get in touch with us. You can tweet us at The Sitcom Club. You can find us on Facebook, The Sitcom Club. You can get hold of all the previous episodes of The Sitcom Club podcast by visiting sitcomclub.com. 
about 65 podcasts in the archive now, about 50 or so of which are sitcom specific, and there's an whole batch in there of all manner of non-sitcom related summer spin-offs that we did this past year. We've got mailbag episodes in there as well. So anything at all that you'd like us to talk about, get in touch with us and feel free to plunder the archive in the coming weeks whilst we're away. However, we're not done yet because we'll be back next week with our New Year surprise. Ah! In the meantime, Ocho, you've been Ocho. This is Hey Ho Moo Co. Signing off and saying thank you again for listening to the Sitcom Club.